Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today... I'm standing at 168 Hampstead Road, NW1. A few streets east and several doors south of Edith Humphreys and Mabel Church. The first two possible murders by the Blackout Ripper, as well as a deadly feud at Regent's Park Zoo, which saw a keeper bludgeoned to death. Coming soon to Murder Mile. The Hampstead Road is a busy thoroughfare heading from Mordington Crescent to Warren Street. As you pass a set of flats and a brown bridge over the train line into nearby London Euston, on their site once stood a row of three-storey Georgian Tevis houses, which have long since been demolished. Crammed full of dozers, as Crossrail decimates the city, it's no surprise that they've gone over budget as you never see a construction worker actually work. You might spy one wetting a bit of road with a limp hose, or ten men supervising as one man digs. But most of the time, all they do is eat. Go to any cafe, and you'll be blinded by lines of high-vis vests, all chuntering, Oi, oi! Fuck you now! Lovely cup of tea! Sadly, as a vital part of any city, although progress erases the past, sometimes that's not a bad thing. Back in 1922, on this site stood a three-storey terrace at 168 Hampstead Road. As a lodging house for those with barely a few pennies to rub together, in a small back room on the first floor lived a young couple, Harry Gimber, and Alice Crabb. Being too poor to marry and too selfish to think of anyone but themselves, owing to the consequences of their carnal lust, it was here that a baby was born in secret. Having gone to full term, it should have been a joyous day as a new life was born to these two lovers only being seen as little more than a side effect of their sex. Even before its birth, the child was unloved. And although this little baby would only live a very brief life, 
it wasn't loved for a single second. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode one six three. The unloved. The tragic tale of this little baby is truly heartbreaking, as it was unloved, unnamed, and unwanted. Many may ask, how could anyone do something so horrific to someone so young and innocent? But it happens more often than you think, as even today, the most likely victims of murder are babies. Henry William Gimber, known to his pals as Harry, was born in Islington in 1902. Given the cruelty he would inflict, you may expect me to impart a story of hardship, violence, and insanity. But I can't. Like many young men, Harry was born into a working-class family, who fought to keep a modest wage coming in. And the looming hunger at bay. Mentally, he was just a very average lad, who wasn't aggressive, moody, or depressive. In fact, except for a grandmother who died in the Hanwell Asylum owing to senile dementia, his family had no history of mental illness, and neither did he suffer from any diseases or accidents, which could excuse this. At worst, he was immature and selfish. But find a young lad on the cusp of freedom, who isn't. Age fourteen, Harry left school. Alongside his dad, he joined the London Transport Company as an apprentice. But he found the grit and grime of the railway life wasn't for him. In his teens. He still wasn't sure what he wanted to do, so although often working several low-paid jobs at the same time, he flitted between many menial roles, whether as a waiter, a kitchen porter, a butcher's assistant, and a nightclub attendant. Like many young men, Harry was desperate to move out of his parents' house, to live his own life, to do his own thing, and to finally become a man. On the twentieth of March, nineteen twenty, in Tottenham Court Road, eighteen-year-old Harry met twenty-one-year-old Alice Crabb, and the two fell in love. As a local girl, born and raised in nearby Clements and Danes, although both parents were rarely home, she was raised under the supportive bubble of her grandmother and her niece. Living in a small lodging full of strong, independent women, it's not surprising that, although society dictated that Alice could only follow one path in life—that of a wife and mother—what she wanted was a little fun first, and to enjoy being young. In April 1921, they began working together at the National Orchestral Association in Soho. 
with Harry working as a doorman and Alice as a waitress, alongside her close friend, Dolly Oust. And having moved out of her parents' house, Alice got her own lodging on Tottenham Street, where she could live her own life as she saw fit. Harry Gimber and Alice Crabb were not bad people. They were just two ordinary kids who were cursed with immaturity and selfishness. And some may say, struggled in an era fueled by societal pressures of the morally upright and a series of cruel rules based on the lawmakers' religious beliefs. There was no denying that what they did was abhorrent. But being little more than children in an adult's world, facing grown-up issues, even with a wealth of evidence which stood against them, what we still do not know is who was telling the truth. According to both Alice and Harry, it wasn't until their first night together that they engaged in sex. Maybe they were careless. Maybe they didn't know about contraception. Or maybe they cared little about the consequences. But that night, a baby was conceived. In court, Harry would state, At first, I had no idea what to do. We were more or less astounded. We decided to make the best out of a bad job and get rid of it. A feat which is easier said than done in an era where unwed sex was a scandal and abortions were illegal. But that's when nature took over. In November 1921, being a little over five months pregnant, Alice suffered a miscarriage. Within their small lodging, she stifled her squeals to prevent her pain permeating the wafer-thin walls. As this slight girl gave birth to a cold, lifeless child in the cramped confines of a communal bathroom. This was an all-too-common sight in an era where women were forced to give birth, regardless of whether they were fit, well, or could cope. Torn by the risk of losing their job, home, or family, most newspapers were full of stories of young unwed girls who had abandoned their babies in secret, whether in churches, doorways, or bushes. For many women, this was a desperate time. But for Alice and Harry, this wasn't a life they held in their hands. It was a liability. And with the ten-inch-long, half-formed fetus lying dead in the base of the bowl, they spoke of its disposal with the cold callousness of someone who didn't care. I threw the miscarriage down the lavatory. As this half-pound lump of life was flushed away like human waste.
This may seem sad, but Alice's miscarriage was a lie. It was one of many lies they would tell to hide the awful truth. By January 1922, Alice was seven months pregnant. It was winter, so hiding her bump wasn't difficult. But being reduced to a wage of just one pound and ten shillings a week, they were lucky to have five pence to spare. Unable to ask their parents for help, Alice and Harry moved into a small, one-roomed lodging at the rear of 168 Hampstead Road. Being roughly ten feet square, a space smaller than any prison cell, it had a horsehair bed, a tiny wash basin, a little fire and a small table for meals, but no kitchen nor bathroom. It wasn't much, but it was cheap. The landlady, Mrs. Birch, bothered them just once a fortnight to wash the bedsheets. And having been built on top of a busy train line, the rumble of trains hid many sins. Being desperate, they hoped for a miscarriage, but it was not to be. Being broke, they couldn't procure a black market doctor to bring about a swift solution with a bottle of bleach, a coat hanger and a high risk of infection. So instead, they had to rely on quacks and old wives' tales. They had tried it all, everything from hot baths to neat gin, heavy lifting to icy swims, vigorous walks to the new wonder cure, castor oil. An accident was a cheap option, but a punch to the gut or a fall down some stairs risked her life. And even tried and trusted purgatives, like pennyroyal and ergot, only made her sick. So with the baby just eight weeks away, they were running out of options. At the end of January 1921, with just six weeks until the birth, whilst working one of his many jobs as a kitchen porter, a waitress called Grace heard his tale of woe and said, You ought to see my sister. That night, Alice, Harry and Ada Cook met in a pub in Chalk Farm. They sat quietly and chatted in hushed tones about the best way to flush it out. And although Ada said she could help, she also said, it won't be cheap. And it wasn't. For a few capsules in a plain box, a bottle of an unknown liquid, a syringe, a funnel, and a handwritten list of instructions, it would cost four pounds. More than Harry earned in a month. That was their last chance, and it failed. In court, Harry would state, We agreed that should the baby be born alive, we were going to get rid of it by abandoning it. When asked, What do you mean, abandon? 
he admitted they had made no plans to put it up for adoption, but that we thought we'd knock and leave it on a doorstep. Denying his plans was to leave it to die. Quiz by the prosecution. When Alice was asked, Had you not arranged to get rid of it somehow? She would state, No, sir. I would have kept the child, but Harry didn't want to. Only this was a lie. As when asked, What preparations had you made? She had to admit, None, sir. None whatsoever. For the baby's arrival, there was no food, no clothes, no toys and no crib. Conceived by accident, and to be born in secret, the little baby was doomed to die in silence and to be disposed of by stealth. On Saturday the 10th of March 1922, with Alice's bump too big to hide, her disappearance was excused with a lie. She twisted her leg, catching her heel in the tram lines on Hampstead Road, and was confined to bed for a week. It was a tall but believable tale they would tell the landlady and later the police. Three days later, on the morning of Tuesday the 14th of March, Alice's labour pains began. Sat silently in their small dingy room, although she wanted to scream as the afterthought inside her pulled at her tiny pelvis, to disguise their dirty deed, they spoke only in hushed whispers. It's coming, Harry. Why, what do I do? I don't know. Without a midwife or a mother present, these novices had no knowledge nor skills to cope with what would happen, whether they liked it or not. As her pains grew more powerful, Alice bit into her pillow to muffle her screams, only daring to expel an audible squeal as the trains roared by. As without it, she risked being caught by those in the next room. The baby was coming. Only they weren't ready for a birth. They were ready for a death. As across the small bed where Alice lay, digging into her stretched and sweaty skin, was the uncomfortably sharp crinkle of sheets of thick brown paper. A quick fix to soak of the blood, which the landlady might see. At roughly noon, she knew it was time. Harry, it's coming. I know it is. I can feel its head. Shuffling to the foot of the bed, dressed only in a nightdress, Alice stood upright. Sweating incessantly as her pale knuckles totally gripped the metal bed frame. Breathing hard, but keeping silent. As the top half of its head stretched her vagina wide, with tear-sodden eyes and gritted teeth, 
She hissed at Harry. Don't fail me. Don't fail me. Although quite what she meant by that, we shall never know. With no witnesses, there were two possible ways that the baby was born. Alice's way. I was standing by the bed. The child was born. It fell onto the floor. With no one to catch it, having fallen head first onto the hard wooden floor, her defense was that a two foot drop had shattered its skull, which is plausible. Only a pathologist would note the bones of a newborn are not fused and the skull is soft. So it may have rendered the child unconscious, but it did not kill it. In court, Alice described the moment to the jury. It was lying on the floor. I could see it. It was a girl. She was small. But as much as she would play the grieving mother, the evidence told a different story. As never once did she pick it up, comfort it, or cuddle it. She just let it lie there on the cold, hard floor. And then there was Harry's way. When I saw the kitty coming out, I made a grab at it and I caught it by the neck. I held it hard because it was greasy. And when I was hanging onto it, I pulled it really hard and it went limp. His defense being that he was frightened and inexperienced, not that he was cruel and wanted it dead. It's possible that both births could be true, just as both could be lies. But then again, an autopsy would find no evidence of a fractured skull, a brain hemorrhage or a broken neck. Only if the baby was really dead, then why did they do what they did next? Alice would state, I was standing by the bed. I was conscious. I saw Gimba put his hand round its throat and try and strangle it. I asked him not to. A statement which Harry would vehemently deny. But with this newborn baby, still covered in the vernix caseosa, a greasy second skin which protects it in the womb, being too slippery to grip its throat, it's likely that Harry chose to strangle it by ligature. She gave me the bootlaces to tie around its neck. A statement Alice would deny. But then again, although an autopsy would find both manual and ligature marks, as well as a bootlace around its tiny neck, with no witnesses, we have only their vague recollections as to what happened that day. And although an attempt to strangle it was made, that was not what killed this unnamed baby.
He took a knife off the table. At which Harry decried, That's not true. A large kitchen knife, roughly six inches long. I saw him pick it up and put it to its throat. Which Harry protested, I never touched it. I didn't. And although he would shout, That's not true! To all of her statements. In court, Alice would deal the fatal blow to his defence by stating, I saw him cut the child's throat. And as if to tug at the jury's heartstrings, she would also state, As he did it, I heard the child whimper. Which begs two questions. How could the child whimper if it was unconscious? And why were its tiny lungs still full of amniotic fluid, as if the baby had barely had a chance to take her first breath? The timings made no sense. After its death, as Alice rested on the crinkled paper, Harry set about cleaning up, although I can hardly remember what else I did. But thankfully, unlike Alice and Harry, the evidence would not lie. Having folded the tiny lifeless baby into a fetal position, this tiny ball-like bundle was wrapped up in brown paper, tied up with string, and stuck in a cupboard. Out of sight, out of mind, out of conscience. Once the afterbirth was out, he washed the floor with a bucket of water. He disposed of the brown paper sheets, and at the little dinner table beside the cupboard, the two ate eggs, and then she slept. At 7pm, Alice was awoken by burning, as their small fire consumed all of the evidence, and the almost familiar smell of cooked liver emanated their tiny room as the child's afterbirth burned in the grate. At no point, in any statement, do they admit to feeling guilt, upset or remorse for the baby. Only themselves. At 6pm, Harry took the parcel out of the cupboard. I got on a tram to Lordship Lane in Wood Green. I know the district well. I got halfway down. I walked along a side street to Five Oaks. I dropped it in a ditch. Then I got on a tram and I returned home. In a disposal which he said was mutually agreed. And that was it. The baby was dead, dumped and forgotten. On Saturday the 18th of March, just four days later, nine-year-old Stanley Mathers was playing with a piece of wood on the water. Popping his pretend sailboat into the drainage pipe. When I put it in, it usually comes out, but it did not. I looked inside and I saw a small wet parcel. A piece was torn and I saw a very small ear. 
examined by Dr. Robinson Dixon. He said that she had been dead for several days. With a bootlace around her neck and no other obvious injuries, death was caused by a cut across the throat from one side to another, a very deep gash right down to the spine, and although the knife was very sharp and the child's tissue was very soft, the cut was V-shaped as the two cuts joined, causing three gashes to the spine. With no way to identify this abandoned baby, a hushed inquest was held at Woodgreen Coroner's Court, which determined that the unnamed baby was murdered by person or persons unknown. The case was closed, the evidence was destroyed, and the child was forgotten. This was the dark little secret which Harry and Alice would take to their graves. Only a secret can only remain a secret if both parties stay quiet. Three weeks after the murder, they moved out of 168 Hampstead Road and a new couple moved in. For the next six months, they shared several lodgings in Blackfriars, Westminster and Warren Street. Only the pressure of hiding such a dark secret inside them had taken a serious toll on their relationship. They argued at home, they fought at work, they screamed in the street, and with their love affair now in tatters. Behind Alice's back, Harry had started seeing someone else, their close friend, Dolly Oust. On the 17th of October 1923, seeing Harry in Old Compton Street, Alice began throwing accusations at Harry and Dolly, as much to hurt him as to ruin their relationship. Out loud and in public, she accused Dolly of being pregnant, of her of being a whore, and of Harry having murdered and disposed of their unwanted baby. With nothing else to lose, Alice dragged Dolly, followed by Harry, to the former lodging house at 168 Hampstead Road and expelled the whole sorry story to the landlady, Mrs Birch. They did the same at the abortionist Ada Cooks, none of whom wanted anything to do with them. But with Harry in denial and Dolly all defensive, with no evidence to prove it, Alice's words just sounded empty and sad. But then again, to quote William Congreve's The Morning Bride, Heaven has no rage like a love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Two days later, upon hearing the news that Harry and Dolly had been married at Brixton Registry Office, Alice Crabb went to the police.
At Albany Police Station, Alice confessed, in a way which made her as much of a victim as the baby. Although in court, she would admit that her motive wasn't justice for the baby, but jealousy and spite. She blamed Harry for the death, the disposal, and said he had blackmailed her into keeping it secret. Harry Gimber was arrested on the 20th of October, the day of his honeymoon, and gave a statement which, like Alice's, was as vague as it was convenient. He denied strangling or slitting the baby's throat, but confessed to everything else, making him guilty of conducting an unlawful burial, but not murder. The trial began at the Old Bailey on the 4th of December 1923. On the charge of murder, Harry pleaded not guilty. And although an accessory, Alice only appeared as a witness. For the jury, the trial was indeed a trial, a trial of their patience. As Alice came across, not as a grieving mother, as her arrogance and lack of compassion shone through. Harry's memory remained vague, and he repeatedly littered his abusive curses with slang, which not only confused, but also annoyed the court. And the judge was so old and deaf, that every statement was suffixed with, What did he say? And yet, through all of Alice and Harry's bickering in the dock, it was thanks to the expert witnesses that the conclusion was reached. Having retired for half an hour, on the 14th of December 1923, Henry William Gimber was found guilty and sentenced to death. But this was later commuted to a life sentence. Alice Crapp was neither convicted nor tried of any offence, and she was released. And as for their unnamed, unplanned and unloved little baby, she remains buried in an unmarked communal grave. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So there you go, folks. That was a nice, nice, happy one, wasn't it? A nice, cheerful one to cheer everyone up. I apologise if anyone's at work at the moment and you're sitting there with your earphones on and you're. And you're like, uh, oh, you're like, oh, I'm just listening to a podcast that I enjoy, and then you've got tears streaming down your face. It was a sad one. There's no, there's no other way to tell that story. It's a, it's a very sad story. It's very upsetting. Ah, oh, and it's weird. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's kind of like, as I was writing this, there's parts of me that feel sorry for Alice and Harry because they're, they're young and they're immature and they're stupid and they've, they've got a lot of pressure on them. But there's still no excuse for what they did, you know. There's a there's thousands of options. There's well, not thousands of options, but there were options that they had. But they chose the worst one, the worst possible option. Just terrible, just absolutely terrible. So uh, yeah, oh, happy story, lovely happy story. Um, what's going on here? It's all, it's all. Oh, this is this is Tuesday afternoon, and I'm recording. That was I, I. I inverted commas. I enjoyed writing that one. So, uh, yeah, I, it was Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, about two ish, and I thought to myself, Do you know what? I've done it. I've written, I've written it. I've rewritten it. I'm happy with it. Let's just, let's just do it. And actually, the recording was okay. So that's got me ahead of the game. It's four o'clock. Brilliant. I can start charging up my, connecting up all my shit to start charging up. So I'm not going to make a cup of tea because uh, it's the afternoon and slurp of water. I'm on a diet. I'm on a diet again because I was last time I was at the National Archives. I was going to going to the toilet. You don't need to know that information. They have long mirrors there, and I don't really have mirrors here except to, like put my contact lenses in. I, I don't really use mirrors. Um, I don't use mirrors at all. Who cares? Um, but I walked past a mirror and it was a sideways one, and I just I just saw this massive sumo shaped thing, and it was just disgusting. A big round thing with big round things on top, and I was just like, that's horrible. So I'm on a strict diet. Uh, a healthy diet, because I always eat, eat healthy, but it's a strict diet. I'm trying to get my... Um, so all the vitamins and minerals are going in, but I just... So no cake, no biscuits, no chocolate, haven't had any alcohol, no caffeine. I, on Monday, I had a massive headache because obviously all these things that should be... That are usually in my diet, all my crap aren't there anymore. But my body's getting used to it now. Oh, anyway, so yeah, so no cake, no cake of the week. Although I'm making some nice soups. Made a very nice one the other day. I'm going to make a variety of different soups. They're nice and chunky and earthy, but they don't contain cream because it's cream. I can't really put cream into it. But there we go. Um, what else is going on? Let's just, let me just do a, a, a thank you to my new patron uh, this week, Sarah Hawley. Thank you very much, and of course a thank you to City Girl uh, who sent a donation via the supporter link. Thank you very much. I'm sorry if I don't get back to everyone. I, I with supporter, it's lovely. But they don't let me know when donations come in. I wish they did. It's kind of, you kind of, you have to check in every so often. And you go, oh, okay. So, so it's it's lovely to receive them. Thank you very much. But I don't get, and also there's no way for me to reply to you directly, which is really annoying. 
but what you can do is if you want to do a donation you could do it through the murder mile website donation thing there it comes straight to me i get your email address i can send you a nice email which is always nice it's always nice to kind of have a two-way communication so so thank you city girl and thank you sarah hawley for being uh, a new patron supporter um uh, what else is going on? I've just gone off and bought some winter logs. Yes, Michael, you're saying, Michael, it's March. Why are you buying winter logs? Because day is cheap. Day is cheap, innit? Uh, uh, Tesco's are doing uh, their winter power logs, which are normally about six quid, but they're now down to three quid. So I've got my, I just got my truck out, my little power truck, and I just truck through the woods and uh, headed over to uh, Tesco's, and that was brilliant. Uh, where am I now? I'm not at the back of the truck stop which is great. I'm uh, next to a little woods, so it's very nice and peeceful. And I'm next to a, 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 a little, a guy I met ages ago, about a year ago. <laughs> I can never remember his name. It's, it's unfortunately, it's a name I can't remember, but I, we always call each other mate because I don't think he can remember my name anyway. But I, in my head, I always call him Latvian Santa. He's a Latvian guy and he looks like Santa Claus. He's really lovely. I, just, I, just, I can't remember his name and he can't remember my name. So we just call each other mate and hello, uh, which is good. Uh, what else is going on? I'm going back into the archives next week, which is good. More cases to cover. I've got two more that I want to pick up uh, that I've never heard of before. And uh, there's some extra research I want to do uh, for Black Hat Ripper because I've still got more to say about that. Um... Just to say, uh, I've got in. A, it's, I mean, it's tipping over the boat. I've got a new stash of Murder Mile mugs here. So I've got uh, some police constable Arsenal Guinnesses, some that say uh, uh, "Stay safe, eat cake," uh, some uh, uh, American Gothic Reg Christie ones made by uh, the the wonderful Mister Mark Rushmere, who does need the money now because he's just had his first child, so he he needs the cash. He gets a, he gets a donation because he did the artwork on that one. Um, so. Link in the show notes, which says link to, link to mugs, hopefully. Go, take you straight to the page. There's three mugs. You can choose either of them. You can choose all three if you like. Uh, I think it's like £12 for each pack. Um, uh, uh, you can book, book, order them through there. They're, they're lovely. They're, there's only a limited supply. And once they're gone, they're gone. Ooh. Um, if you do that, don't forget to select the right shipping. Uh, sometimes people book on it and they either forget to do shipping or they select card and it causes a lot of problems so uh that's all good uh, and just to say uh, if you want things to keep you entertained while murder mile's not on or you know during the week um got the murder mile youtube account the link in the show notes as well i've started doing some new little like three minute videos of case murder cases which happened in in and around the west end which won't be coming to the podcast because they're just for uh, the youtube channel so the first one that went out was uh, mama cass and the myth about if you heard the myth that she choked on a ham sandwich that is bullshit and you can uh, you can find out why in this episode and uh, we've just released i say we it's me just released the uh one about keith moon uh and why have i put those two together you will find out if you look at those so they're really good uh, you can have a look at the playlist there's all the location videos uh some other stuff as well but also these are listed as i think they're listed as minisodes so you, you can there's only two out at the moment by the time you listen to this there will be three i think uh so let's do some quiz questions oh. Michael, you're whizzing through this, and I've got my tangerine to enjoy next. Ooh, exciting. How exciting is life? Right, question number one. Don't forget, I will probably ball some of these up, but don't worry, it's not a biggie. Question one. How much did Ada Cook's abortion kit cost? Okay. Question two. 
what is the nearest murder as covered in Murder Mile to this one? Question three. What was the name of the woman that Harry married? Question four. In which street did Harry and Alice have a major bust-up? Question five. Where is the train line going into on, on top of which the house was built? Question six. Uh, what did Harry and Alice eat for dinner after they had killed the baby? Question seven. What was the name of the landlady? Question eight. What was Harry going... Uh, sorry, question eight. I was just rereading my question. Question eight. What job was Harry doing when he heard about the abortionist? So what job was he doing? I'm just re-saying the words I've just said. When he heard about the abortionist, what job was he doing? Just the same words, isn't it? Question nine. What On what street did Harry and Alice first meet? And question ten. What is the name of the club where they both worked? So let's dive into some details here. Uh, just to say, if you are a Patreon supporter, uh, uh, there's a lot of exclusive content on there. So with this one, I'll be putting up a map. The police drew a map because when you there's very little about this in the newspapers which is what drew me to this kind of case and i wanted to know more about it originally this was going to be for murder mile the book uh because there was connection they said he was a uh they said he was a uh, uh a club room attendant on uh old compton street which is untrue it's on archer street which i know is only about two streets away and it's pedantic but so it's not really going to be in the book but uh, that that led which is great it means of I, I could do it as an episode for this uh but yeah no there, there'll be some extra stuff going in uh, uh from the archives so if you're a patron subscriber you'll get all those for two quid a month that's nothing you can enjoy yourself splash out um so finding the baby uh as we know stanley mathers 19 a uh, nine-year-old stanley mathers was there he was actually there with his buddy at the time uh they were kind of playing with uh little like toy boats as kids do making it go through uh the the drainage ditch uh it, it wasn't going through and they looked and that's when they saw the little parcel um i took this out of the story um they were quite rightly they went to go and find a policeman this was pc Leonard girling who was on duty on the junction of high road and lordship lane um uh, he went with the lad he, he saw the little brown parcel he said it was very wet and one side of it was open the kids hadn't opened it it's just kind of you know water and wear and tear it was tied with string uh and it uh, uh and at the open end they saw a baby's head exposed with a large cut to its throat um the policeman got an empty sack and he took the baby to the police station where dr dixon saw it um i've used the full quote in there dr dixon did the autopsy on this um he said it was a a newborn female wrapped in brown paper a bootlace tied around the neck the child was doubled up and a cut across the throat from one side to another it seemed as if there had been an attempt at a v-shape as the two cuts joined the gash was very deep right down to the spine with three gashes on the spine the the knife would have been very sharp and the child as the child's tissue was very soft um he, he, he could only make an estimate that the baby had been dead for a couple of days because the weather was cold the baby was 
naked and uh, it was in water as well so the timings were impossible but he estimated it was around around between three to five days which was correct it was four days so uh he wasn't too far off uh but still with that they couldn't find out who the baby was no one had reported the baby missing obviously there's no birth certificate uh, there's no grieving parents so pretty much they, they, they went through all their records they couldn't find anything um the inquest was closed a baby was determined murdered murdered by persons unknown and was buried in a communal grave and that's where everything kind of goes quiet but obviously with uh harry and alice uh it's uh, things kind of went a little bit bad now it, it's it's interesting isn't it because it's kind of like a year later so you think about the murder scene the murder scene it doesn't exist well it exists now but there's there's been a family living there and and actually another family had moved in after that as well so two families have been in there since the murder happened harry had already cleaned it up the bed sheets hadn't got blood on them because they they made sure that the uh the brown paper was on top the string was got rid of the brown paper the knife is missing uh the uh uh, the afterbirth was destroyed in the fire no one witnessed it or saw anything of it so pretty much this murder has got it it's you could say almost it was the perfect murder they gave birth to the baby in secret it was done quietly and they got rid of it quietly he kind of he killed it put it inside his jacket and then he, he dumped it miles away where no one would find it. it it wasn't like he was one of these dickheads who was like i'm gonna wrap it in in some newspaper which uh is from my hometown but also a sheet which is from just around the corner of where i live and uh, i've done a crossword and the answers to the crossword are my name and address do you know sometimes people in these murder cases are just freaking idiots they really are but he's used things that can't be identified so clearly when you look at this you go there is clearly some a lot of premeditation in this but there's no there's no kind of pre-thought in advance of looking after the child uh which is uh, very much where the murder case comes from um but obviously after the murder there's a lot of weight on their shoulders uh, they did live together they said we left Hampstead road uh, about 3 weeks afterwards after the accident which was what harry said uh they moved to blackfriars different places i'm i'm going to whiz through this only cuz they both gave statements and i really want to read that um but they started getting on really bad terms with each other uh, harry remained living with her until thursday the 18th of october which is which is uh oh no hang on when did he move out oh i'll find out another time no it was slightly earlier than that but pretty much they stayed with each other and arguing and arguing argue, arguing until i think it was like three weeks before it wasn't much uh, they were still working together at the uh the the musical place which is uh i think that's one of the questions so i won't answer that one that was really annoying apparently they were they were fighting a lot everyone was commenting on it she was throwing th- things at him uh, and then obviously they had that massive bust up in the street which i mentioned in the episode um really strange that she would drag harry and his new girlfriend slash fiance fiance all the way to hampstead road because if you look at the map if they were arguing in hampstead uh, in i don't know if this is a question it could be I think it is. I won't say it. Well, luckily, it was somewhere in Soho, but actually, a portion of it actually happened on Rupert Street, just around the corner. They were they were in a little cafe. His little his bit on the side was actually in a cafe waiting for them, uh, and that's when uh, Alice was like, "Right, I'm going to drag you all the way up to Hampstead Road." Now that's a that's a hell of a walk. 
that really is a hell of a walk. It's uh, that could be about 15, 15, 20 minutes. So it's not like she dragged them. It's kind of, you know, they both all three of them were arguing all the way. Uh, but they went to see the landlady. The landlady obviously knew nothing about it because they kept it a secret. And they went to see Ada Cook, the abortionist at, at 48 Fleet, Fleet Road in Hampstead, uh, which is where she lived. Uh, and obviously Ada Cook was like, I don't know anything about it. I don't know who you are. You, I didn't know you were pregnant. I don't know anything about this abortion stuff. And it's like, of course she would. Cause she didn't, she just, in fact, she didn't even come to the window. When they were shouting up at her saying oh, about the abortion, she wouldn't come down. She basically shouted them out of the window. Uh, in the street, the, the, uh, uh, Alice and Harry had a massive bust up and it, it was physical as well. There were fights, uh, sorry, punches from both ends. Uh, uh, seizing each other from the throat. It was pretty horrible. Pretty horrible by people who saw it. Um, but yeah, uh, day she finds out that they got married, Alice goes straight to the police. Um, uh, police say, uh, when they're in court, they say, was it your intention to prevent him from getting married? Alice said, yes, it was to do that. Um, uh, they said... Uh, I suppose you were jealous and Alice said no I was not jealous which we all know is a lie clearly it was a lie uh, Harry was arrested on the 20th of October 1923 and taken to Albany police station where he gave a statement which I'll read very shortly um, because at that point they could they hadn't got any evidence because obviously there's no evidence to find and he in his first statement which I'll read he's denying everything pretty much the police really didn't have a lot to go on because it was kind of hearsay at this point um, and they really hadn't been able to they hadn't f the, the baby was found but they couldn't link it to that because they obviously the baby doesn't have a name and they're, they're, they're saying well there wasn't a baby uh, so Harry's statement on the 20th of October 1923 was I first met Alice Crabb in name of road uh, on the 20th of March I'm getting good on the 20th of March 1920 at that time we were total strangers we then walked out together which means dating and we saw each other frequently we were still living at uh, she was still living at 44 new compton street uh, i went there about three times in june 1921 we commenced living there as man and wife at an address at tottenham street w1 uh, we were there a few months i should say about three after living there about a month crab told me she was pregnant after leaving tottenham street we went to six wellington street in camden town this would be about september 1921 uh, in November 1921, uh, while at Wellington Street, she also had a miscarriage. This is the, the false miscarriage that we uh, we heard about at the start. It happened in the morning and I was present, being out of work. Um, she was pregnant be between five to six months. I threw the miscarriage down the toilet. The child was not fully developed. Neither of us told anyone about it. We left Wellington Street somewhere about Christmas 1921 and went to an address in Seymour Street for about a week or two and then we went to... 168 Hampstead Road. We occupied a room at the back of the first floor. Uh, whilst there during March 1922, she twisted her leg in the street. She caught her heel in the tram lines in Hampstead Road. I was there with her and I helped her home where she was, was confined to bed for a week. I did not call a doctor as I could not afford it. We left Hampstead Road about three weeks later uh, after she got up from her accident. 
And then there's this this bit about where they lived kind of afterwards, which we kind of don't need to get into. Uh, we parted on bad terms. Um, we had not been on good terms for some considerable time. We got tired of each other mutually. Uh, she had been jealous of a miss, a friend of hers, who used to visit us. At that time, Crab and I were both working at the at 14 Archer Street, W1. I used to meet her at work and we quarreled frequently. She frequently accused me of walking out with which was which was quite true. In fact, I married a Brixton registry office on Friday, uh, the blah, blah, blah. Um, then there's a little bit where he just goes into about the fight. Um, let's dive into the next one. Hang on. Uh, ah. Hang on, hang on. Uh, also, accusing me. Uh, uh, hang on. Uh, no, that's fine. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm rereading the statement because I don't want to mess up the, the the questions that we've got. But also, uh, um, we all, all oh here we are. We all three went to Hampstead Road and saw the landlady. Crab asked the landlady if she remembered her having a child when she was there. The landlady said she knew nothing. Uh, of her having a child uh, but knew that she was laid up there but understood she had sp she had a sprained ankle all three of us went to fleet road to see mrs cook who used to visit when crab was pregnant uh, mrs cook looked out of the window but refused to come downstairs we left there and whilst in the street crab used some very bad language towards me and attempted to seize my throat we had another, another quarrel and a policeman came up and parted us Crab uh, has told other people where we work of the accusations she made previously towards me uh, that I was a murderer and that <laughs> was a prostitute. In consequence of Miss Crab's accusations, I have left my situation, i.e. his job. Um, the statement made by Alice Crab to the police has been read to me. It is not true that she had a child at 168 Hampstead Road or anywhere else. She only had a miscarriage and that was at Wellington Street. I did not threaten to leave the country if she gave me away. The only reason I could suggest for Alice Crabbe's allegations against me is that she is jealous of and myself keeping company. Since Crabbe and I parted, uh, she has several times threatened to kill me sooner than see me marry. Once on one occasion at work, she tried to strike me with a whiskey bottle, but I prevented her. So that was the first statement. There's a little bit more on there, but uh, that was the first statement. Um, I, and then obviously the police let him go. But by that time, the police are kind of already doing their work and they're already looking at the timescales and they kind of worked out what the dates are. And they're looking for kind of um, uh, uh, dead babies that were found in London and they have a bit of a list and then they're... Uh, then they start going through them uh, and because of Alice's statement they were able to work out which baby it was and then they had they had the uh, the baby dug up uh, so they could redo the autopsy on that point and it had been a year but it was still enough time that they could redo the autopsy because don't forget these wounds are pretty big um so yeah the, the the police went round to his place of work and basically uh, his place of work left a note for him uh and he he voluntarily went back to the police station so this was 30th of october 1923 um 
They'd also left a note uh, at 34 Compton Street where he was lodging at that point and his landlady had said, you need to go to Albany Police Station. Um, He wrote, I want to tell you that the last statement I made was practically true, with the exception of one or two elements. I truly wish I had told you the truth last time as it has been plaguing on my mind. The reason I didn't tell you the truth was because of the young woman I have just married and my old folks back home. The story I told you of the miscarriage, it was a lie. Miss Crabb did not have a miscarriage at 8 Wellington Street, uh, but she did have a baby at 168 Hampstead Road in March before last. Uh, When Miss Crabb had the child, she was standing in the room by the bed and I saw the baby come from her. I do not remember whether the cord was broke or whether I cut it. This was kind of a key thing in the case um, because uh, uh, it was determining whether there was a knife in the room or whether whether he says he didn't hold a knife. Uh, He was like, I never cut its throat. I didn't kill it. I I didn't slit its throat. And they said, well, how did you... uh, how did you cut the umbilical cord? And he went, oh, I didn't. It, it, he, he either said, he, he said it either it snapped or it broke, but he denied that he cut it because if he admits that he cut it, therefore he admits that there was a knife in the room, although there was a knife in the room because it says home, therefore there would be. Um, as soon as it came down, I caught hold of it and I seemed to go mad. I can hardly remember what else I did, but I remember it felt all greasy. My hands were covered with blood and so was the floor. I remember that well. I recollect uh, after it was dead, I did it up in a piece of brown paper and I think I put it in a chest of drawers out of the way. I then helped Miss Crabbe clean herself up and I put her to bed. I then cleaned the floor and went out and did some shopping. I remember I had a bit of dinner. We had a couple of... Um, Soon after 6pm, I took the parcel out of the drawer and I tied it up as small as I could and then when it was dark, I took took it out. Uh, and then he has his, his little statement about it's it's kind of detailed about where he went uh, and dumped the baby. Uh, as interestingly, as he was getting his fingerprints taken because he was being charged, uh, he said, I'm glad this is over, but she is as bad as I am. Uh, she gave me the boot laces to tie around its neck. We mutually agreed to get rid of it. Alice's statement. Alice's statement is uh, a bit vague. Uh, In March or April 1921, I left my parents home to live in Tottenham Street alone. I still saw Harry and after a while I uh, I went to live with him. Actually, he went to live with her. Uh, It was on the 12th of June 1921. After that, I noticed that I was pregnant. A week or so later, he had no connection with me before I went to live with him. That's i.e. sex. We lived together at Tottenham Street until the end of August. Details about where they were living, which is all fine. Uh, Harry was with me when it was born. No one else. I was standing by the bedside. The child was born and fell on the floor. And Harry got hold of it. And I got back in the bed. And then I saw him commit the crime. He cut the child's throat with a table knife. I asked him not to do it. He never said anything. The likelihood is owing to the timeline that uh, he may not have strangled it. He may have just picked it up and cut its throat immediately. There was ligature marks around the neck, but we we don't really know when that kind of occurred. Everything seems a little bit... He, baby could have come out. He could have been trying to strangle it as it was coming out. Uh, but, but this is the thing. The baby doesn't seem to have been able to have taken a first breath. 
because uh, it's it's it, you know it's still got fluid in, in its lungs. Um, the child whimpered after he cut its throat. He got the afterbirth away from me, uh, which he later burnt in the fire in the room. He put the body in the cupboard. I don't re- recollect uh, if he put it in as it was, i.e. wrapped up or not wrapped up. He stayed in the room with me. There was blood about the floor, which he wiped up with a flannel. He left the body in the cupboard and did nothing more about it till 6pm when he took it out. He came back about 8.30pm and I asked him where he had been. He said he had been down to Enfield Lane and told me he had left it in a ditch down there. I was in bed 10 days after the birth. Uh, The bed sheets were not stained. Uh, and then there's just details about uh, where they were living after that. Uh, what else have we got? Let's have a look. Uh, there's a committal hearing on the uh, 22nd of November 1923 in Clerkenwell Police Court, where Harry was charged and placed on remand. Uh, he was held at HMP Maidstone. Uh, the trial, interestingly, the trial was not under his full name, Henry William Gimber. It was under harry william gimber which is not his real name which is weird you would think in a court they would try and get it right uh, uh when asked uh, guilty or not guilty obviously he said not guilty he also said do i look like a man who would do such a thing mm. um it's interesting the, the 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 file that's in the archives because uh, normally you just get kind of a precy of what's going on but in there is the full transcript and it's fascinating like Alice and Harry do not come across well at all. They are both really argumentative with the judge and the lawyers. Their arrogance shines through. They're, they're, there's just no compassion at all. They never once say, uh, oh, how sad it is about the child. Do you know, they're, they're upset. They're always talking about themselves, about you know, their lives, about what they want. And it's, you just kind of think, you guys are assholes. You really are. Um, Harry was constantly misremembering all the time. He kept. He said, uh, to tell you the truth, all the way through since the day it occurred until today in court, I have tried to forget things. And to tell you the truth, it came as such a smack that it, ha- uh, it has taken me hard thinking to remember. It's a classic Harry statement. Um, uh, In the trial, Alice was considered as an accessory to murder, but she wasn't charged. Uh, The problem is, um, if you think about the evidence, she's just giving birth. That's all she's really done. It's she's in bed. She's given birth. She gets back into bed. She hasn't touched a knife. uh, She hasn't touched she hasn't cut up the brown paper all the strings she hasn't dumped the body do you know none of that she literally is she's given birth so she kind of in a way has kept her hands clean really um but throughout um harry would still admit that he he hadn't slit the child the child's throat which is interesting even in the court that they they would query everything they would go okay at which point did you wrap up the child and he was like oh i i think i did it like almost immediately i like wrapped it up and i put it in the cupboard and they were like well did you unwrap it after that and they was like no i I wrapped it and then i put it in the cupboard and they were like so when did you slit throat and he went i didn't and they went okay so how is it that the body arrives in enfield and it's still wrapped up but the water has made the 
the uh, the parcel slightly open and the policeman, even though the parcel wasn't open, it was only partially open, he could see that the child had a really deep slit to the neck. So he's like, how does a child get a slit neck via a knife while still wrapped up inside a parcel? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyway, it, it took barely half an hour for the jury to make a decision and uh, Harry was found guilty. Uh, sentence was passed. And the judge says, do you have any final words? And Harry Gimber said, it is no use saying anything. Petulant little arsehole. Um, but as mentioned throughout this, not one of them expressed guilt or remorse at all at any point. Um, the, the transcript is a nightmare because the judge, as mentioned in this, he was he, judge. Uh, the judge was old and deaf and he kept going, can you repeat that? What did he say? What? It's, it's it's so annoying to read the transcript. Really freaking annoying. Um, so as mentioned, uh, he was sentenced on Friday the 14th of December 1923 uh, for the murder of the newborn child of Alice Grab Crab in March 1922. So even there, Alice is seen as the victim. Um, the jury found the prisoner guilty, but with a strong recommendation for mercy, and the judge passed a sentence of death, which was his job. Uh, uh, it went to appeal. Uh, initially, it was dismissed, uh, but uh, because the because the evidence was overwhelming. But then it was commuted uh, to just life in prison, um, which then. Uh, meant uh, his sentence would expire 6th of April 1934 uh, so that was 10 years just just slightly over 10 years uh, uh, we don't really know much about him uh, there were a couple of Gimbers out there I've searched I'm still not too sure exactly which one he is uh, I've got a few I've got, I've got a few a couple two died in prison that i know of uh one died down in surrey in his 70s uh but he may have changed his name may have changed his name so uh we don't know and we don't really know what what happened to uh alice crab because she probably gave birth she probably uh married someone else and changed the name which is always annoying annoying with genealogy ah <sighs> and that's that oh cripes a lordy right let's see how many of those quiz questions i ballsed up probably about five billion right here we go um come on michael get to the right screen there we go question number one how much did ada cook's abortion kit cost it was four pounds question two what is the nearest murder as covered in murder mile to this one it was the murder of mabel church by the black potentially the black eye ripper question three what was the name of the woman a woman which uh who harry married her name was dolly oust uh -uh. question four in which street did harry and alice have a major bust up it was old compton street i see i haven't even written the answer there what a dickhead question five what is the what is the train line going into on top of which the house was built it was london euston Question six. What did Harry and Alice eat for dinner after they killed the baby? It was some eggs. Ooh, some eggs. Lovely. Question seven. Uh, what was the name of the landlady? It was Mrs. Birch. Uh, Mrs. Margaret Birch, in fact. Question eight. Uh, 
What job was Harry doing when he heard about the abortionist? He was a kitchen porter. Uh, this was over on Museum Street. Uh, question nine. What street did Harry and Alice first meet on? At uh, Tottenham Court Road. In question ten. What is the name of the club where they both worked? It was the National Orchestral Association. So that's that. That's that, folks. Um, next week, another episode, another one-parter. I don't. I, I. I think I know which one I want to do. I've got loads that I want to do, but this one, yeah, I think. I think. I think I know what I'm going to do. It, it's a weird one. It's a weird one, but the, but it's a little bit funny. And I think we need something slightly funnier to pick us up after this one, which was a bit depressing. So, anyway, thank you very much for listening. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Be good. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.